Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, my website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz or at Banking Day. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from our website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review a lot of the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 25 in our series for 2023, and today's date is Friday, July the 21st. First, I'll be talking to Anita Wingrove, the Managing Director of Leading Search and Leadership Advisory Firm, Russell Reynolds Associates, about how boards can get a new breed of leaders. And I'll be talking to Rabobank economist Michael Ivory about why China's recovery is a sputtering. But first, let's talk to Anita Wingrove. Anita, you're, you're looking to beef up the calibre of leadership on boards. How do you identify the right people to develop and promote? So, goodness, certainly when we think about boards, there's a significant work being done at the moment in terms of really understanding the future-focused skills matrix, if you like, of boards, because with the, the changes that we've seen over the past few years across the sector more generally, it's really requiring a very different kind of board member, um, non-executive director, the scrutiny in enlisted companies that boards are under uh, more and more is really driving new demands and certainly extraordinary amount of effort of board members. And so helping board individual leaders prepare for those roles is certainly something that's important. And in terms of the, the skills to prepare, it's as much about the, the what they know, the experience, the exposure they've had in terms of certain markets, areas of experience, but also how they operate at a board level, their capacity to really engage with and contribute to boards, uh, not just within their functional area, but, but really um, across the suite of issues that boards have to deal with. Most of the work that I personally do is in CEO succession and C-suite succession, and there are some particular topics there that of course that are really pressing down on organizations as they think about identifying and developing talent for senior leadership roles in organizations and it's really driven by a number of trends that we've seen more recently the amount of digital transformation that is taking place you're really bringing the future future forward and that's driven a whole new level of leadership that's being required uh, even at, at sort of c-suite level I would argue that you know, the level of complexity has really increased as a function of that. Third area is, of course, um, ESG and sustainability. And so where previously leaders were really uh, perhaps able to be very successful by 
remaining right, you know, pretty much in their swim lane and thinking about their own um, success as an organisation with the stakeholders immediately around them. Now to be successful, they really have to be much more tuned into the broader context, the community, the social agenda, uh, and, and of course the um, sustainability agenda more broadly, and that's requiring them to, to lead in much more complex environments than they have had to previously. Now, you mentioned this uh, in the context of uh, C-suite of uh, listed companies, but you've also done some work with family companies as well. What are the issues there? And would they be very different in developing leaders for family companies? I would imagine they would be. Uh, yes, they, they are, Leon. You know, I mean, I think when we you have sort of owner founders who, who, who really uh, create something from nothing and are really wanting to carry the business on in a family context. You know, there are two issues there. One is, you know, succession within the family, where that can happen and how do you prepare younger family members for leadership roles and how do you build them up? The second complexity is, of course, bringing in talent from the market to succeed founders when they're really coming in afresh and perhaps don't, they're not part of the family, they don't, they don't have that sort of context with the family. In, in general, I think with, with companies of, of, of that nature, that there's, a, there's a few challenges at hand. One is oftentimes we found in our research and the work we've done across Asia in particular, that the, the team composite is, is just as important as having sort of best of breed people in each role. And so the best CFO working in a family business might be excellent because A, they're a great CEO, but B, they work very, very well with, with the founder of that organisation. They, they, they sort of become the, the yin and the yang, if you like. And, and, and that there's that huge sort of reliance and trust. Oftentimes in, in businesses like that, that it can be very sort of long tenured, long serving, loyal talent who work there. And so how do you give them the exposure uh, that, that they need beyond the organisation and give them that, that outside in view. So, so those are the challenges that I think it can be quite unique to succession and talent development in family businesses versus enlisted companies. So um, the issue is, I mean, you're, you're actually working with future leaders and uh, you mentioned before that um, one of the big issues was COVID and a lot of people were just weren't prepared for it. Uh, so you're actually challenging their own thinking, aren't you, in the way they go about their leadership? Yeah, I think I think COVID's challenged their, their thinking in the sense that that um, you know all of a sudden leaders were, were literally leading um, you know in the living rooms of of their teams through Zoom and other means, and all of a sudden you know the weight of the personal issues bearing down on all of us. If we just think back to sort of 2020, it was as much about you know, how's this business going to survive versus family members in, in hospitals and things like that. I, I did a piece of work for a consumer company who, who had a significant global presence and particularly right across Asia into to, to Pakistan and so forth. And, you know, the complexity of, of the environments in those countries on the ground um, was just extraordinary. And so here you have leaders who are just not prepared to, to lead in that environment and all of a sudden, they were really helping people both professionally and personally to get through some really trying settings. And of course, some did that very, very well and others found it extremely difficult. 
um, both personally and also in terms of the, the skills that they, they perhaps didn't have at that time to, to lead. Did you have to train them? So, so some, so gosh, I don't think we, there was training at that time in the sense that there wasn't time for kind of big kind of bespoke programs, but certainly I think the, um, the menu of the day were um, very focused sort of webinars, uh, huddles, and these sorts of just-in-time sessions where, where leaders were literally grab, grabbing hold of anything that, that they could really with um, two hands to really help them frame up the problem in their own mind and bring the best that they could to those situations. In terms of uh, leadership development, CEOs have to develop their own successes. How difficult an issue is that? Or how major an issue is that? Well, it's becoming a bigger and bigger issue. What we're seeing uh, globally, I think, with the um, increasing in the external pressure on, on CEOs that the tenure of CEOs is reducing in general. So where in the past, perhaps we would see 10-year CEOs, you know, seeing out their roles Certainly in, in this country, in Australia, that, you know, many chairs will tell you that that's closer to six years. So the turnover is greater and therefore CEOs are spending a lot of their tenure preparing the next generation where previously perhaps it was something that would come up. There's a greater onus on boards to build, a desire for boards to build talent internally, which is adding increasing pressure for, for CEOs to develop talent rather than just rely on hiring someone in from the market next time round. It's always a, a tricky to topic. I'm in the role and, and yet I'm thinking about who's going to replace me. But, but those CEOs that have really good relationships with their chairs, where there's really is that strong chair-CEO relationship, they tend to fare better in this regard in terms of what we're seeing in the market. And they start early in developing their leaders. The bottom line question really is providing successes with exposure to the level of complexity that's required at CEO level and that's not easy in itself but, but ultimately for individuals to be positioning themselves as serious contenders internal contenders for the CEO role that's essentially what they need to do and the opportunities that the CEO and the board needs to create for them. I'd imagine too it would apply at a board level too it's not just uh, CEOs choosing successes but Directors would actually have to look at who's going to come after them too. Would that be right? Absolutely. And, and I think the organisations that do this well really take a long-term view on board succession. And they're thinking both about the individual skills that they need, but the composite of that board in the context of the future strategy of the, the organisation and the role that the board plays. And, you know, increasingly, of course, not just about skills. Uh, skills is, of course... Um, includes diversity, diversity of thinking, exposure, background and so forth. So that boards are really on point to be thoughtful and, and tuned into the broad array of uh, requirements and needs that they they need to, to work with. Now the $64 question is, which sectors are particularly good at this? That's an interesting question. I, I don't know that it, I could say that there is one sector that is better than another, but I think there's certainly been, you know, I think we can all think of organisations where we can see, we, we know that CEO succession runs very well, smoothly as possible, that there's been um, a series of CEOs who've been appointed, you know, internally and, uh, you know, that the, the share price, if it's a listed company, has 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 um, gone from strength to strength and the same and the same goes for, for boards. I think that 
perhaps the less we hear about organisations, probably the more successful they are at doing it. Each sector, of course, has its own challenges in terms of how to develop talent and how to make trade-offs. Um, but, but oftentimes, you know, those challenges can be at the organisational level, not just at the, at the sector level. Right, okay. Well, Anita, that's all quite illuminating. And thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Leon. And now let's talk to Rabobank economist Michael Avery. Well, Michael, the Chinese economy, everyone was expecting it to rebound. It hasn't rebounded that well. Uh, what's your view about that? Not everyone was expecting it to rebound, Leon. At the beginning of the year, when they reopened, there were two views, and I was completely agnostic, but leaning towards the, the second of the two. The first one was because it reopened, it's got to rebound the same way that the Western economies did. And everyone hugging that view had a vested interest in it being the case. And the more cynical view, which I leaned towards, but you know, I was open-minded, was that why should it rebound? It had massive structural problems going into COVID. And fundamentally, during the lockdown, they differed from us in that they didn't get given cash handouts. All the households there were not cash rich. So you had the hardest possible lockdown for the longest with no money in the bank to support you. And then they removed the controls and everyone says, great, go spend of money. Why should you? Why should you? Why would you? And they're not, and it isn't happening outside of the very wealthy who are spending money and everyone else isn't. So the issue is uh, nothing's coming from the ordinary people. No one's spending anything. So the economy's got no uplift at all. Well, the economy in China is not based on consumption anyway. It's based on overproduction and exporting to everybody else. And any purported shift towards consumption, which we've had missold to us, year after year after year by shill after shill is not going to happen when you don't have money in your pocket. You're not seeing any structural reforms to make consumers and consumption stronger relative to investment and exports and against a gloomy global backdrop. So I, I simply don't see where the lift is going to come from. So, of course, you've got a whole lot of issues there with debt as well, haven't you? Yeah. I mean, China is saturated with debt. I mean, it, repeatedly, I've said to you over the years, everyone looks a genius with a credit card and China has had credit card after credit card after credit card. And we've seen in other economies, including Australia, how artificial that kind of growth is. China's already in the phase where they're cutting interest rates where everyone else is raising them. And it's not working because people are too indebted. They understand property prices there are not going to be able to keep inflating. And above and beyond all this, the government at the highest level is making it very clear it wants to shift to a whole new economic structure based around common prosperity, which is going to be a painful process to achieve in many respects. And as a result, overall confidence is flat, flat as a pancake. And I don't see any sign of that changing soon. Right. Okay. So what can turn that around? Not a lot, not a lot. I mean, if you, if you start off with the assumption that China has too much debt, massive structural imbalances, which it does, rapid and enormous demographic decline, which it does, a very difficult geopolitical backdrop in terms of being cut off from key technologies and getting involved, you know, with various trade stouches with countries around the world. And then you say, OK, let's turn that corner. How? People haven't got money to spend. Businesses won't invest when they've invested too much in the wrong things and have too much debt. And the only force that could potentially turn it around is the government. And the government has too much debt because they've got to try and bail everyone else out for their mistakes up until now, even though they're saying they won't. So there's no sector of the economy that you can turn to quickly and just say, yeah, that's the answer. Press that button. If there were, they would have done it. And the only ones that logically you might put forward involve a complete change to China's political economy to bring in much more market forces, which is the complete opposite of what the government says it wants to achieve. And that will not happen under this no. government. 
It's not going to happen under any government in China. Simple as that. It's a political decision that they won't make. So, you know, I'm not saying anything new to you here. Regular listeners would have heard exactly the same message repeated in all the time we've been talking and for years that I've been saying the same thing before that. It was always a question of when we got into this middle income trap or the quagmire or the Japan style scenario, whatever you want to call it. And there's now broad recognition that China is there, but there's now just as much denial from the people who have been wrong every step of the way so far in accepting that once you're in that mess, it's almost impossible to get out. It looks like China's heading for what? Japan went through a lost decade. Would you agree with uh, that? Yeah, except except Japan's now in its third or fourth lost decade and doesn't have any prospect of sustainably reversing it. It's just have to accept that it's, uh, you know, basically in nominal terms, the Japanese economy is the same size as it was when its bubble blew up, you know, a generation ago. It hasn't changed. And China is a lot poorer than Japan, and it does still have some gaps that it can fill, you know, and some catch-up growth in some areas. But if you're looking for a parallel, there is a worrying parallel there. And all these people who for year after year presented me charts in markets of exponential lines going up, of China's economy is going to look like this. And I just said, no, it won't. It's going to flatline. And they would say, you don't know what you're talking about. And I would say, no, vice versa. You don't know what you're talking about. They're now having to confront that reality. But there are still shed loads of management consultants and economists and think tanks and advisors out there putting forward exactly the same charts saying China's going to look like this going forward. And no, it isn't. Not unless something really radical changes. And it's really hard to see how that's going to be achieved. There, I mean, it's not that it's impossible. It's just that it's extremely unlikely. So, but there are gaps to fill the Chinese economy, surely. Yeah, but, well, there are some gaps, but you're going to have to borrow more to do it. And you have to decide what gaps are we going to fill. The problem is that the gaps that need to be filled are in services and consumption. Everyone knows that. You don't have to be much of an expert to point that out. But the problem is we have an economy that's based on investment and production and exports rather than consumption and services. And how do you transition from one to the other? If you close down, I mean, Australia's got the same problem. If you close down all the property market and say, we're not going to build any more property, you have to fire all the builders. If you fire all the builders, and that's around a third of GDP, where do you get the consumption from the other two thirds of GDP to pick up the slack for all the unemployed people who aren't building property anymore or making money on property speculation? So when you shift to something good, you have to throw off something bad and that that drags down the good. So, yeah, the gaps are there. I don't see anyone, particularly from the think tank shills who I've been mentioning already, putting out a really concrete plan for how we get from A to B. It tends to become, you know, just uh, jazz hands and quick look over there, moving quickly onto the next slide. And not appreciating the political political economy equation. Oh, they've refused to see that for as long as I can, you know, remember. <laughs> I, I still talk to people in markets now who are like, yeah, but once you start mentioning that, people go cross-eyed, they don't want to hear it. It's like, well, that makes as much sense as saying we're going to go and do business in, say, Afghanistan under the Taliban, but we're not going to bother understanding that they have a certain way of seeing the world. And, you know, I'm going to go and open a pub selling bacon sandwiches and we'll see how well that does. And indeed, I mean, there was a period. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Though, where China has something approaching a market economy, didn't it? Oh, look, large parts of the Chinese economy were market-driven for a long time. I don't want to 
in any way pretend that that was not the case or overstate that it didn't have any market forces. It did. The problem is the parts of the Chinese economy that operated on a market basis were similar to our economies in the West, good, bad and ugly. And, you know, the good parts were the genuine prosperity that you saw being created in lots of places. The bad and the ugly were massive speculative bubbles and overinvestment in sectors which don't make money or which basically are what, um, from a Marxist ideological perspective, you would call fictitious capital. And I, I include most of property in that. And that they, Marxist theory says that property prices are complete financial voodoo. Real wealth comes from actually making something physical that you can sell for a profit. And more and more voices in Australia are saying the same thing too, by the way, belatedly, adding, adding value to things. So what Xi Jinping says very clearly over and over again in his common prosperity theories based on Marxist, Leninist, Maoist, Xi thought, which is well worth reading, very cogent analysis, both in English and in Chinese, is that China cannot continue with that model anymore. So it's not that the people who are selling markets say, oh, we need more markets. It's that he's saying where we've had markets, it hasn't helped us. We've got overvalued property. We've got inequality and we've got, you know, overcapacity in areas that don't really add anything that we need uh, from a national perspective. And therefore, we need more government to basically show the way in terms of what's important and what isn't. And, and again, you're hearing that argument being made in the West. And I think, right. And in terms of uh, China taking in Australian iron ore, that's, how likely is that going to continue at the same rate? You've got well, three. Let's say they've got the cyclical. That's not looking too good at the moment. You've got the structural. I, I can't see any long-term argument for how China needs the same level of iron ore today that it has in the past. They've built everything that they would ever need, pretty much. They've overbuilt everything. So unless they're going to knock them all down and rebuild them all again, I just don't see where the growth comes. And then you've got the political, which is, do they want to buy from from Australia at all? And the answer is no, not really. I mean, they will for now, absolutely. But if you ask me 10 years from today, would they prefer to be buying from, you know, somewhere in Africa or from Brazil? And the answer is 100%, 100%. Because Africa and Brazil is where they want to invest. Well, that's where they are investing. That's where their governments are, you know, hugging each other and saying, you know, we're the, we're the global south and Australia is very much not the global south. So it's not that there isn't money to be made right now. There is. But anyone who thinks this is the same story as being for the past 20 or 30 years in, in you know, vis-a-vis Australia and China, just is refusing to see facts that could not be any starker in front of their face. And I get why, you know, people wave a few dollars in front of you and it's very easy not to see things. But it's just a sad but true fact that 10 years from now, things will probably be very different. Well, Michael, thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. Have a nice day. So what's happening in the news? Well, mounting speculation around the Reserve Bank's leadership concluded on Friday, with headlines lighting up to confirm Michelle Bullock's appointment as Australia's next governor of the central bank. Michelle Bullock described herself as a country girl who once found the idea of going to the city daunting, but she will make history when she takes up one of the biggest jobs in the city as the Reserve Bank of Australia's governor on the 18th of September. Bullock started at the ABA in 1985 and has held a number of senior management positions. She'll be the first woman to hold the post after previously breaking new ground when appointed deputy governor last year. Bullock will have the challenging job of steering reform as well as the unfinished task of returning inflation to target inflation has passed its peak but was still growing at 5.6 annually in May, well above the 2.3% target range. Most economists agree borrowers could expect to see a continuation of monetary policy decision making with Bullock involving in all the meetings in the present tightening cycle. University of New South Wales Business School Associate Professor Mark Humphrey-Jenner said none of Bullock's communications to date suggested her views deviated much from those of her predecessor. 
He told the Australian Associated Press that the tightening cycle will likely have ended by the time she takes the reins, and a first test as a leader will be determining how long to keep interest rates high before cutting them. Former Treasury official and economist Stephen Hamilton said Bullock was the best option, but there was a valid argument to bring in an outsider to shake things up in light of her review findings. He told ABC TV the decision to go with the insider, who was still able to implement change but unlikely to scare the horses, was the right one given the uncertain economic environment. Hamilton said the review did call for some pretty dramatic cultural and governance changes, and appointing someone who had been at the institution for 40 years raised a legitimate question. But he said Lowe should not be criticised for lifting interest rates to tackle high inflation, as the RBA has been doing since May 2022. National Australia Bank economist Ivan Colhoun believes there are likely to be few implications for the hiking cycle, but said she was likely to be seen as more practical and less theoretical than a predecessor. The intense focus on who would lead the RBA for the next seven years highlights just how important key individuals are in the policy-making process of central banks. Past luminaries around the world include Alan Greenspan, Ben Bernanke, Mario Draghi and Janet Yellen, and current leaders such as the European Central Bank's Christine Lagarde show how personalities can influence monetary policy. Even with a robust and best practice operating framework, the execution and interpretation of central bank policy always comes down to individuals and their work is to be commended. But aside from the twin pillars of process and people, another influence of policy is the difficulty in managing uncertainty. Monetary policy must weigh potentially costly outcomes as part of the decision process, none of which can be known in advance. On Friday, Michelle Bullock said a big part of her role as the new governor of the Reserve Bank would be leading the central bank through a period of change. The comments were made in small talk in Anthony Albanese's Parliament House office moments after being named the ninth RBA Governor. Change and renewal inside the RBA is a big theme, explaining why Treasurer Jim Chalmers bucked the convention and opted against extending the term of a sitting RBA Governor. Outgoing RBA boss Philip Lowe has another two months before his term officially ends, including heading off this weekend to India to attend the G20 Finance Minister meeting with fellow central bank governors. Later in her statement, Bullock, 60, said she intended to oversee an RBA that delivered on its operational policy objectives for the benefit of the Australian people. Communication counts for everything with central bankers. Former long-serving US Federal Reserve boss Alan Greenspan developed what was called Fedspeak, the art of saying nothing and keeping public comments to a minimum for fear of setting off a violent reaction in markets or even worse, politicians. This was a standard even in Australia under several RBA governors. Lowe, by comparison, has delivered a prolific flow of speeches covering policy and economics through his tenure, and it was this frankness that got his strife. Bullock is expected to continue with the open dialogue, and it was a positive step by Chalmers on Sunday to finally defend her right to do so. Her recent comments that the unemployment rate would need to rise to 4.5% to reach a sustainable balance point were relatively uncontroversial, given they were consistent with Treasury and RBA forecasts, Chalmers told ABC TV. The bank that Bullock inherits and is about to undergo the biggest restructure in decades is also dealing with a new and more aggressive inflation problem that most developed countries thought they had not only tamed, but finally killed off before the COVID pandemic hit. Ultimately, it's a nine-member Reserve Bank board that sets interest rates, but the Governor has a casting call and influences the future direction and expectation of rates. This will be a whole new test when the RBA's new monetary policy board is established in about two years. Bullock's appointment has been widely endorsed by business markets and RBA watchers as delivering much-needed continuity. However, her relatively short apprenticeship for the top job as Deputy Governor leaves few clues to approach to interest rates and taming inflation. In a speech in Newcastle last month was arguably her most important to date. 
Bullock attempted to tackle the mythical economics creature Nauru. The non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment is the lowest level of an unemployment that can be sustained without causing wage-linked inflation. It's mythical, because while central bankers often speak of it, it can't be measured. In Australia, Bullock said this rate was closer to 4.5% for the economy to be in balance. This is a full percentage point higher than what the RBA was prepared to accept for the jobs trade-off to curb inflation. Some seized on these comments as being hawkish, although others maintained this again was consistent with Lowe's approach to have Australia hit its inflation target by mid-2025. While this attracted all the attention, it was in other parts of the speech that Bullock came down strongly on the side of employment. Like Lowe's had previously said, she indicated the RBA is willing to accept a more gradual approach to getting inflation back to target than in other countries. A faster return to target would likely mean more job losses in the short term, Bullock said. And Philip Lowe has used his final foray on the world stage to blast governments and political leaders for their indolence on structural reforms to boost productivity growth, which is imperiling material living standards, worsening income inequality and hollowing out social services. In unscripted remarks at a G20 gathering of finance ministers and central bankers in India on Monday, the outgoing Reserve Bank governor said that while the high inflation plaguing the world was an immediate threat, the bigger challenge is to lift productivity growth. The good news is there are a lot of insensible ideas about how we can do this, Dr Lowe told the opening session of the meetings in Gandinagar. But another reality we face is the challenge here is a political one, he said. It's not about not knowing what to do, it's a political one. And the political challenge is to get these good ideas that are already out there through our political systems. If we don't do that, then we are condemning our citizens to slower growth in real wages, smaller public services and an increased tension on income distribution. Dr Lowe, whose seven-year term ends in September when he's replaced by his deputy Michelle Bullock, has been increasingly vocal about the consequences of Australia's poor productivity performance, including much higher interest rates to quell inflation and endemic stagnant wages. In a candid post-budget speech in May, Treasury Secretary Stephen Kennedy said the nation's abysmal productivity performance would wipe out more than half the expected economic bounty from full employment, record migration and the commodity export boom. Dr Lowe's valedictory remarks were circulated by Jim Chalmers' office. And the Prudential Regulator wants boards to sharpen oversight of accountability for cyber breaches, finalising a new standard on operational risk management, which seeks to fortify the financial sector from hacks, such as the one that devastated Medibank Private. In a new cross-industry policy covering banks, insurers and superannuation trustees, the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority said boards were ultimately accountable for operational risks. It wants companies to get on the front foot to reduce disruption for customers should systems go down. The final standard, known as CPS 230, contains new requirements to address identified weaknesses in existing controls and to improve planning to ensure services can still be provided if computer systems are compromised. Companies will have to enhance risk management of third-party IT service providers. The conclusion of the year-long process to settle the revised standard comes after hackers stole almost 10 million customer records from Medibank last year and released some information after demanding a ransom payment, raising concerns about cybersecurity defences in the financial services sector. And the CEO of one of Australia's major consulting firms has admitted to a Senate committee his position is not worthy of a salary seven times greater than the Prime Minister's. Four executives from Deloitte fronted a Monday public hearing into the integrity of consulting firms that provide services to the federal government. The inquiry was launched in response to what has become known as the PwC tax scandal, which involves senior partners misusing confidential government information to help big multinational companies avoid paying more tax. In Deloitte's first appearance before the committee, the top brass was slammed by both Senators Deborah O'Neill and Barbara Pocock for being opaque about salaries and employee misconduct. The committee asked for an anonymised breakdown of how many Deloitte 
said, like employees, earn more than $1 million. But Chairman Ton Mbessi said that could not be provided due to commercial sensitivities. Eventually, CEO Adam Powick told the hearing the average base salary of a partner at Deloitte was between $500,000 and $600,000. It has been publicly reported Mr Powick earns about $3.5 million, which Senator O'Neill went on to grill him about. Are you really worth seven times the salary of Australian Prime Minister, she asked. And the ACCC has published draft guidance to help improve business environmental claims and reduce the number of greenwashing instances it has found. ACCC Chair Gina Cascot-Leaps, Educating Businesses, was crucial in light of the body's recent greenwashing crackdown that found 57% of businesses reviewed had made potentially misleading environmental claims. The ACCC said the draft guidance would help businesses understand what was considered proper practice when making environmental or sustainability claims. The ACCC also listed eight principles that it encouraged businesses to apply when making environmental claims. They were, make accurate and truthful claims, have evidence to back up your claims, do not hide important information, explain any conditions or qualifications on your claims, avoid broad and unqualified claims, use clear and easy-to-understand language, visual elements should not give the wrong impression, be direct and open about your sustainability transition. Ms Cass Godlieb also called for feedback from businesses on the draft guidelines and what other information could be used for organisations to avoid getting caught greenwashing. And Fortescue Metals Group called on called on investigators to probe an allegation concerning the behaviour of, of its executive chairman, Andrew Forrest, the latest twist in the billionaire's business empire just days after separating from his wife after a three-decade-long marriage. Law firm Seafarth Shaw was called in by Fortescue's board after directors became aware of an anonymous letter concerning the behaviour of Dr Forrest. It concluded none of the matters in the letter were substantiated. However, the revelation of the inquiry tops a turbulent period for one of Australia's most high-profile business figures after the discussion last week to split with his wife, Nicola Forrest. The directors of Fortescue became aware of an anonymous letter concerning the behaviour of the executive chairman, a Fortescue spokesman said on Sunday night in a statement. The board immediately met and engaged CFAST Shaw LLP to independently investigate the letter and provide a report. CFAST Shaw LLP provided a full report to the board, the statement added. The investigation concluded that none of the matters in the letter were substantiated. There were no adverse findings. Dr Forrest was excluded from this entire process because it related to him. Dr Forrest and Ms Forrest announced late on Wednesday night that they were, had made the decision to live apart. Ms Forrest's paper fortune is now about $1.1 billion more than that of Dr Forrest after it was confirmed the pair were living separate, living separate lives in what is the largest split of wealth in Australia's history. Ms Forrest has one key asset now solely in her name, putting her estimated fortune $15.46 billion which would be enough for the seventh position on the list, Australia's richest 250 if it were recalculated now, and about $1.1 billion higher than Dr Forrest's $14.53 billion wealth. The decline in their relationship has been a topic of widespread speculation and gossip throughout Perth's wealthy western suburbs for a considerable amount of time. Fortescue said it would keep details of the investigation secret, noting it had a number of channels for team members to report complaints, either anonymously or in person, in keeping with accepted whistleblower protocols. Dr Forrest returned as the company's executive chairman last year and has been the driving force behind its ambitious and contentious push to become the dominant player in hydrogen energy. Fortescue was under pressure for much of 2022 to give investors some clarity on the cost and timeline for any of the dozens of massive green energy and hydrogen projects it has earmarked. And Superfund 
are not being properly scrutinised as they build up a huge portfolio of illiquid, illicit assets, putting Australians' retirement savings at risk. The authority that oversees the financial regulator has warned. A review by the Financial Regulator Assessment Authority, run by former Macquarie Chief Executive Nicholas Moore, declared the Prudential Regulator had fallen short in its oversight of how funds value assets, such as office buildings, infrastructure and private equity funds. The failure could leave super fund members out of pocket thanks to unfairly reduced or inflated balances amid a cooling global economy and increasingly complex investment strategies. The independent review found the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority took an undeveloped view of risk to the $3.5 trillion super system and failed to proactively identify and understand key challenges including the impending retirement of baby boomers and severe market downturns. The Financial Regulator Assessment Authority was set up after the Banking Royal Commission to ensure that regulators did not allow a repeat of a misconduct and covered by the inquiry. This is its first report on APRA after reviewing the corporate watchdog last year. APRA's regulation of super funds was also less mature and developed than its approach to banks and insurers, the review said, despite its importance to the finances of more than 15.6 million people. Experts have expressed alarm about the large investment by super funds in private assets, which have underwritten their strong returns, raising questions about the accuracy of valuation and the management of diversification and liquidity risks as interest rates rise. Super funds wrote as much as 15% off their extensive unlisted office property investments in their end of financial year valuations, instead relying on booming technology stocks to cushion member returns. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to serial entrepreneur and business coach Tom Williams from, in- from Innovation Consult. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest jobs figures. In the meantime, catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. If you want to contact me, email me at leon at leongetler.com. I answer all emails. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 